So 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10. Uh, and let me just open with this. Uh, this was a time where I remember waking up in the tent at about 2 a.m. in the morning, hearing screaming coming from the tent next to us. Now, it wasn't a grizzly bear or anything like that. My neighbors who we were camping with that, week, uh, that weekend, their tent had collapsed on them in the middle of the night. So here's what happened. Uh, so I just bought a fancy new mountain hardware tent. My friends lived in West Virginia. We lived in Virginia. We we're like, let's meet in the middle. So we met in this place called Seneca Shadows. It's this beautiful open plain area at the base of Seneca Rocks, uh, this 800-foot uh, rock spire that uh, pops up from the ground and people rock climb all night. You see the little headlamps going up. And so we're sitting there by the campfire that night and, and we're excited to just talk. And we notice the campfire is really hard to keep going. And that's because gale force winds started picking up uh, over the course of the evening. And so we decide, hey, we're going to retire. The fire's out. It's a little chilly. And so we went to bed. Well, uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, well, first of all, I'm not even sure I went fully asleep. Uh, the wind uh, was pushing through. It was freezing cold. You could hear everything. We heard trees crashing in the forest at night. It was really comforting. It was, really, it was a good night's sleep that we got that night. Uh, so 2 o'clock in the morning, we hear screaming in the tent over, and we pop out, and, you know, they're just covered by a tent, and, you know, you help them put it back up, and we crawl back into the tent and go to sleep, and thankfully, we had just bought a nice new fancy tent, but the tent wall was being blown to where it was sitting about here all night long. It was miserable, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever felt this or not, but it's this experience of camping where you pray all night long, Lord, please let the sun come up. Like, I just want to pack up and go home because this is absolutely miserable. And finally, at about 5.45, I saw the sun just kind of peek over the ridge, and I'm out. I'm like, okay, hey, everybody want coffee and breakfast? Let's pack up camp and, and go home, right? And so we do that, because everybody was miserable. And, and so as I get up, now here's, here's the trick. I forgot the whole reason that I bought this tent in the first place is because it's super light, right? And I forgot that there was gale force winds when I was unstaking the tent uh, as we were packing up. So what do you think happened when I pulled up the last stake of my tent that, by the way, I hadn't yet broken down yet, you know, it's just, just this, I was early in my camping experience here. So I pull up the last stake and, and guess where the tent went? That way, right? And so here I go, I'm trucking across this wide open plain, and, and I just don't think this is going to stop until we get to Virginia. And so um, there's this large thicket of bushes, and I'm just praying, Lord, let it just stop long enough for me to catch up with, to it at the bushes. And so I'm sprinting, I'm trying to get to it, and sure enough, it starts rolling over, and then it just stops miraculously at the top. And so I put on my athletic prowess, and I jump after this thing, and I grab it, and I realize when I jump into the bushes why it stopped. It's thorn bushes, right? And so I'm stuck too. I'm holding on to the tent, and I can't move. So my wife takes about 15 minutes to peel me out of the thorns. Then we peel the tent out of the thorns. There's holes in the tent. There's holes in me. I'm bloody. I groan. I long for home. Well, this morning as we jump into the text, last week we saw Paul talk about our weakness as being in jars of clay. This morning he changes metaphors, and he moves from jars of clay to tents which is fitting because you know what Paul's occupation was when he wasn't in ministry? He was a tent maker. He understood the frailty of tents. And what he does is he says, while we are in this stuff, skin, in the body, we are in tents. And tents are actually pretty poor at protecting us from wind or the elements or pain or suffering, right? 
And what he articulates today is that while in these tents, we groan for home. Have you felt your tentness more in your life than in this season? In a pandemic, behind masks, sometimes fearing the person standing across from you, wondering if an unseen pathogen is going to infect your body and ravage you or one you love. You're feeling your tentness. Wednesday, I went running through a cemetery and I ducked under a gate and I hit my toe on a root and I collapsed. Have you ever seen a giraffe fall? It's awkward, right? And as I hit the ground because I was thinking of this passage, you know what the words went through my mind were? Stupid tent. (laughs) Because it hurt the whole rest of the run because I was a long way from home, so I had to kind of limp my way back. Maybe in this season you feel yourself kind of like my tent, emotionally rolling, being driven by the winds of whatever is happening, be it disease, illness, death, grief, only to be caught by the thorns of addiction, depression, or loneliness. While in our tents, we groan for home. You know what sustained me through many nights, actually, that were pretty awful in a tent? I knew I was going to go home. There was that hope of eternity. Not eternity, my home. I skipped ahead. But there was that hope of being able to go home. And what Paul is saying is, we suffer in these tents, and one of the things that's going to pull us through is that we're going to go home. So that's what we're going to look today. So the first thing we want to look at is our new home. Follow along as we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 5. Follow along with me. Paul writes this. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So here's what we're going to see here this morning, is we're going to see Paul's wrestlings with home. He wants to go home, but he is still here, and this is how he's wrestling these things through. So as we look at this first bullet point, this idea of the new home that Paul points us to that is being prepared for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Two things to look at. First, buildings, and then we're going to look at this idea of clothing in this passage. The first thing that we see is buildings, right? We know that the tent is our earthly home. It's destroyed. We have a building from God. So Paul begins to point our eyes forward to these buildings that are to come. And, and he gives us uh, some ideas of what these buildings will be by way of contrast with what we experience in a tent. First of all, he says the tent will be destroyed, but, but logically we can uh, basically uh, come to the conclusion that those eternal buildings will not be destroyed, right? We're not going to have holes in us when we jump into the thorns. The second thing that we see is that uh, right now in tents we groan, but we can logically think about the fact that our heavenly buildings will be a place where there is no more groaning. Finally, in the tents we groan and we are burdened, right? But he's saying these eternal homes or buildings are places where there won't be any more burdens. Friends, have you ever imagined another dwelling more in your life than right now? Have you ever groaned at the upkeep or the burdensome nature of the tents that we wear or the tents that we live in, right? Maybe it's our bodies. (laughs) 
you know, I don't know about you, but I've longed for a different body a good bit uh, over the course of the pandemic, or maybe our homes, maybe 115 days is just a little too long to stay in one place, and we really just yearn to be in another home. Paul's saying one day that burdensomeness, that groaning, uh, the ability for the tent to be destroyed is going to go away. Then he switches in three and four, and he, and he begins to kind of mix his metaphors and go from tents to clothing, right? He says this in four. He says, For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, in this tent, we're not currently naked. Now, that's a strange word. Just bear with me. Uh, Paul says it, so I'm going to say it. He's like, we're not currently naked. We're not unclothed in this tent. But one day, we will be totally and fully clothed. It's kind of like Anthony in 32 or less degree weather. I can have all the clothes on in the world, but I yearn for more. I hate the cold. And so what Paul is saying is, is there will be a day where we are more fully clothed. There will be no shivering in the 32 degree weather. But it will be something that is permanent. You know, I think just one little nugget to, to throw out to us right now is this pushes against when we can start talking about eternity, Christians can sometimes become so heavenly minded we become no earthly good, <laughs> right? And Paul is not saying what happens on this earth in our tent, in our relationships, in our, uh, what we do at work doesn't matter. He's just saying it's not quite there yet where it will one day be. He's saying he is longing for and trusts that even when he dies, he's not going to be left naked, but that through death, that, that building will one day come where he will be fully clothed. Does that make sense? So what's he talking about about this building, right? So this building is kind of strange, and I'll spare you the, the uh, details, but if you read commentaries, there's a lot of debate about what the building actually is, but uh, a lot of people, a lot smarter than I have, have kind of helped me navigate to this conclusion that the building that he's talking about is our resurrected bodies. So when Christ returns, he is going to give us bodies that are resurrected, right, that are perfect. Romans 8 is a great study companion as you study this passage, just FYI, if you want to study it on your own. But here's something that Paul says. He says, not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so he's saying uh, one of the aspects that we're yearning for and groaning for is our bodies to be fully redeemed. Now he unpacks this. There's a lot in this passage, but I'm just going to touch on it briefly. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he gives kind of one of the best pictures that Paul writes about these redeemed bodies and what happens when Christ returns. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, for those who are asleep. Asleep are those who have died before Christ returns. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ, and through his resurrection, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So here we go. Christ comes back. The dead in Christ rise first. They receive their resurrected body. And those of us who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another 
with these words. And so this is a picture, just so you wonder what's happening here with Jesus is coming back. The picture here is that of a king returning from battle, and those who are in the city walls come out to greet the king when he's victorious and usher him into the city. And so he's saying when Jesus comes back, everybody's going to know it, the trumpet's going to resound, the dead in Christ rise first in their resurrected bodies, and then we then who are alive when when Jesus comes back will also follow behind them, greet Jesus in the air, and usher him back for all of eternity. And home is going to be with Jesus. That's our new home. Do we think about that very much? I mean, how often do we think about this picture of eternity, of that day? Can you imagine the high fives? We will not be social distancing on that day. We will be high fiving and hugging and celebrating. The king is back, and all groaning and destruction will be gone. And you know what Paul says there? There's a communal aspect to our view of eternity that we are called to encourage one another with those words. Friends, during a pandemic, grab one another and say, persevere, brother, persevere, sister. The new heavens and new earth await. Our new bodies await. Eternity with our Savior awaits. Paul is saying, encourage one another with those words. Now, if you're following along at home, if you have the PDF, you'll see that I'm cutting a whole section of this just for time's sake. But, but one of the things that Paul says is we have the guarantee of the Spirit in verse 5. That's the down payment. I've put on the PDF a list of the ways that the Spirit who is in every single one of us as believers encourages us and reminds us that the down payment has been made and that eternity is ours. And it's not ours to hold on to. It's the Holy Spirit who applies it to our lives. Here's the second point. Is it God or Paul calls or Paul basically gives us a picture of how he lives out this eternal home that he's been talking about in reverse. So he lives out this eternal home in reverse. Pick back up with me in verse 6. Paul says this, So we are always of good courage. In light of this eternal reality, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are apart from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for that which he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so there's two things that uh, we see. What Paul is essentially saying is this eternal reality is true of us. And he's saying that eternal reality bubbles over the banks of eternity and flows into this world so that we can be two things, of good courage and then pleasing to God. Those eternal realities bubble over into life today so that we can be of good courage and be pleasing to God. The Christian life essentially is living out our eternal home in reverse. The kingdom realities of a perfect eternity where our king reigns, living that out in reverse. So first let's talk about good courage. He says that in light of these things we are always of good courage. Another way to render that word is to be confident. He's saying we are confident. And he redefines home. So if we start thinking about eternity, sometimes we can think, oh, the building. I'm going to get like my wings and float and play a harp and that'll be cool, right? Or I'm going to get a body like the rock. Like I'm going to be there. We're going we're gonna to get there. And that's what my hope is in. And actually Paul redefines that and says being home 
uh, basically means being at home with the Lord in verse 8. So the eternal building is great, and there's no groaning or suffering in them. But he's saying our true home is not a body, but it's a person, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. You know, um, in verse 7, he says this. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. There's this reality that even now, God is not easily accessible by sight, right? But we live a life of faith. But that doesn't mean just kind of blindly believing the unbelievable, but rather it's living all of one's life based on the confident trust of God's promises for the future, even when we can't quite see it. So in my miserable night in a tent, I by faith have to take, uh, take it uh, as on its face that my home that I am longing for is still standing when I get there, and then the heat still works so I can thaw, right? And that's essentially the Christian life. Right? It's just having faith and trusting that God is there and eternity will be there. I love verse 8 because it shows the tension that we live in, where he says, yes, we're of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And if you feel that tension, that's not a lack of faith. That's just reality. A young woman who my wife and I had the privilege of, of leading on what we called a summer project when we were in campus ministry in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, uh, lost her life here about 10 days ago. Uh, she was young. She had three little kids and her husband. And uh, the night she passed away, two Wednesdays ago, uh, I was just struck by the husband and, and just how, well, first of all, what he did that first night after she passed, he actually put a tent up in the backyard. And he gathered the kids, and they just sat in the backyard in the tent. It's something that they loved to do. And I was just struck with this picture of how they just sat there under the sky, right? They don't have windows and ceilings to be encumbered by. And they just sat there, and they dreamt of eternity. They dreamt of seeing Mom again. They dreamt of Jesus. You know, it struck me that that's very much how it felt for me when my dad passed away uh, when I was 27 years old. I remember I haven't thought much about eternity at that point. I mean, I did, but I didn't. But when he passed, my mind just immediately went to that place where I was constantly trying to view eternity because it was brought front and center to my eyes. And I talked to my pastor and I said, hey, what happened to my dad when he died? I got the resurrection part that we just read in 1 Thessalonians, but like what's happening with him now? And he's saying, well, he's called, it's called the intermediate state. But it's saying even though his body is still here on earth, he is immediately, this text tells us, present with the lover of his soul, with Jesus Christ. I mean, for months, I was just totally taken with that. And you know what just struck me as I was thinking about my friend, as I was thinking about that season of my life, is that our view from the tent becomes clearer, especially when we are in those valleys. Those are seasons where God particularly focuses our eyes and calls us to strain our eyes to see that hope of eternity so that we can take good courage, even in those moments of pain and suffering. Well, the last point here I want to touch on is this idea of pleasing him. In verse 9, he says, we make it our aim to please God. You know, I just scanned uh, the verses that came just before this in the previous chapters, and, and here's all the things that Paul said was true of him, a broken-down sinner that God had done for him. Ready? He's comforted him. He's shown him mercy, grace. He's been faithful to him. He's established them. He's led them in a triumphal uh, parade. He's delivered them. He's made them sufficient. He's given them the ministry of the Spirit. He's made them bold. He's transforming them. In the midst of their suffering, they haven't been crushed, despairing, abandoned, destroyed, 
they're being renewed. God's preparing for them a future glory. And it's out of the first four chapters that Paul says, I make it my aim to please him. Man, he has loved me with his life. And it is the goal of my life to bring pleasure to my love. One of my friends asked me once, we, were, we had worked out and we were in the locker room getting ready and, and I had shared the gospel with him. He's like, Anthony, my life's a lot more fun than yours. He's like, why don't you do like what you would call bad things? He's like, it's a lot more fun, you know? And, and he's like, you just got to work your way to God or something, right? And, you know, I turned around, I was like, you know, Trey, that was his name. I said, you have a girlfriend and you love your girlfriend, right? He goes, yeah, yeah, totally. I said, you're in that relationship. You're not worried about keeping that relationship necessarily, right? He's like, no. I said, I said do you aim to please, right? Do you bring her flowers? Do you uh, whisper sweet nothings in her ear? Sorry to gross you out there, but, but do you do those things because you love her? He's like, yeah. I said, that's why I live the life I do. It's not burdensome. I live to please the one who has loved me so deeply. And isn't that a difference with how we approach God? Christians often understand that we're saved by grace, but we fall into the ditch of living the rest of our Christian lives trying to keep our standing with Him. But isn't there a difference between earning His love and pleasing the one who's loved us? That's the Christian life. He has lavished us with grace. And in response to that, we aim to please Him. I said last thing just a second ago. I'm sorry. That was a little bit of a pump fake. Here's, here's the very last thing, is that you do see part of the living to please God in verse 10. He says, we must come before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so part of that living to please God is living in a reality that there is a judgment seat of Christ that we have to sit before one day as believers and non-believers. Now here, I'm going to be really brief on something that's super complex, and I'm sorry, but this is called the Bema Seat of Judgment. There was a tribunal bench in a Roman courtroom as you entered Corinth where the judge would sit. And, and basically Paul's saying Christ is one day going to come back and judge all people who have ever lived. And even as Christians, we must one day stand before that. Now what does that mean for Christians? Super complex, but let me tell you what we do know. Going back to Romans 8, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That even now, as we live our lives, the future verdict of not guilty because of what Christ has done in his life and death and resurrection is still put over top of us. And so we don't need to go to that judgment seat in fear. However, there is some form of judgment of what we do in our earthly life. And it says everything will be judged and we will get our just reward or we will get rewarded according to what we did in this life. Now, here's the most simple way that I've thought about it this week. As I think about my relationship with my wife, what God is saying is as we are judged as faithful stewards, as we live our lives pleasing towards him, in a way, it's kind of like me getting more roses to give to my wife. It's rewards that I get to lay before the one who has loved me to show my love and appreciation for him. Now, that is overly simplistic, right? It's a super complex piece, but that is something that Paul talks about. I wanted to name it uh, before we wrapped up our time together here. But friends, Paul's bottom line is, as he's saying, while we are in our tents, we groan for home, but we can be of good courage, of our guaranteed eternal place that bubbles over into the here and now and motivates us to live lives that are pleasing 
for the one who has loved us. Let me close this in prayer. Well, Lord, there is a lot here. But I do pray for, for those who do not yet know you. Lord, I beg you to wake them up to an eternal reality where you will also judge those who don't know you. And that you will wake them up to the reality that there is a Jesus that they can trust in by faith. So they can rest that when they stand before you, you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into the pleasure of your master for all of eternity. Lord, draw those hearts to you. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that you will help us to strain our eyes on eternity, on that building, on that eternal home, so that we may worship you forever. Lord, help that bring the hope that we need to be of good courage. And so, Father, be with us. Be with us as we leave here. Comfort us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.